Hello and welcome to another episode of the LSC Africa Summit podcast. If you haven't heard about it, the LSC Africa Summit is a two-day conference taking place on the 22nd and 23rd of April this year. The summit will have a research and business conference that will feature discussions in Africa within a global context. We'll be bringing you great content like this in the run-up to the summit and afterwards, so be sure to stay tuned. My name is Yassi Olalaya, the head of communications for the summit, and I'm joined by Justin Villamilla, correspondent. Today, we're very excited to speak to Professor Jude Howell, who is in the LSE Department of International Development. Professor Howell's area of expertise is China, with a particular focus on the socio-political dimensions of market reforms. She also has experience in aid and development policy, security, and civil society. In this interview, we will discuss Professor Howell's background and her work in the context of China-Africa relations, especially as a discussion on this very topic will feature in the research conference. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, what initially interested you in China studies and, and how have you come to focus on civil society in particular? Okay, I guess um, like many people, I've got interested in China by seeing something exciting on the um, news. And in my case, I remember as a young, very young teenager, seeing lots of very interesting media coverage of China um, in the um, seven, 60s and 70s, a time of the Cultural Revolution, um, a very tumultuous period and controversial period in China's history. And uh, there was some very interesting media coverage around collectivization and um, Maoism and Little Red Book. And unsurprisingly, at some point, the Little Red Book uh, began to hit bookstores in um, the UK and all over Europe and probably America. And uh, so, of course, this seemed a very exciting um, idea to have a copy of the Little Red Book. So I had got a copy of the Little Red Book. Um, and this, of course, was all taking place in the context of the 60s, which was in any case a um, almost revolutionary period in, in, um, um, in the West. Um, so that was one reason. And then actually later on in life, I spent some time in India and I learned Hindi and I lived there for two years and I worked there and I studied there. And, um, but of course, I was very interested in development questions um, as many people are in India. And um, I then went on to um, late. Oh, and after this, be, for, by chance, I had the opportunity to go and work in China as a uh, teaching linguistics. And um, so I went to China and lived in China for two years in the early 80s, which was um, a very early period uh, for, many, for many foreigners to actually spend significant time in, in China. So that's how I became interested. And China seemed to be so different to India. And at that time, uh, looking back in the late 70s in India, it was obviously quite different to now, where India is also one of the so-called rising economic powers. Um, and you had a real sense in China that it had a, sen it had a sense of purpose and direction about where it was going, huge um, desire to... Uh, move forward to change things that life could be better so it was a very exciting place to be and continues to be so it's a fascinating time to be in China during the 80s that's uh, <clears throat> that's amazing uh, Yossi? Um, so we're just sort of wondering because so as, as part of the summit we, we have a breakout session on you know, China-Africa relations everybody is talking about China-Africa so just wondering you know, what were your thoughts about you know, China-Africa relations do you think we need to pay special attention to it 
Well, yes, we do. And people do, in fact, pay special attention already to the China-Africa relationship. And I think that is, although China has always had relationships with Africa and has since the 50s actually been uh, giving aid um, in the general context of the Cold War to uh, certain African countries, those that were in the process of uh, liberating themselves from colonization. Um, and China was, like the Soviet Union, also uh, significant in supporting uh, many of these um, countries that were um, seeking another path, uh, both liberating themselves from colonization and also seeking an alternative path to development. Um, and But since the China going global in 2000, well, actually also from the reform period, but particularly from the going global period, we've seen an acceleration and changes in the form of um, Chinese aid, trade and investment uh, across many African countries. And I think for Western countries, this has now given them a sense of, oh, there's been a missed opportunity, whereas um, a lot of Western countries thought it was too risky to uh, invest in Africa, it's um, there are all of these problems, there's conflict and all kinds of things. The Chinese uh, government just jumped in, had confidence um, in Africa as a place for investment and trade and so on. And um, and I think that really took a lot of Western governments by surprise, being the speed and uh, with which um, China has built up its relationships in Africa. Um, so I, th- I think it that also fits into the broader concerns of many Western governments about uh, China in particular being seen as a threat um, of the rising power, rising economic and political power that was somehow as a threat. And here was China deep um, in sort of courting African governments for uh, what was seen for all kinds of purposes. What we also have to remember, that, and this is often neglected in the literature, that China, of course, was busy doing that, whilst the Western powers, uh, USA and its allies, were embroiling themselves in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq um, in, uh, in the name of the war on terror. So while they were busy uh, uh, involving themselves in military endeavours and, of course, expending considerable amount of defence budget money on those issues, I think the Chinese government was very smart in actually quietly getting on and building up these important and strategic relationships um, in Africa. So one of the things that your work focuses on a lot is um, civil society. I was wondering if I could ask you how exactly African civil society groups and Chinese civil society groups can ensure that the interests of the people on the ground are respected by the governments that are making aid and investment agreements? Well, I think this is a very important issue because some Western donors, well, Western donor governments um, channel quite a bit of their money through NGOs. And so for that reason, um, many development NGOs are familiar with uh, development policies of um, Western donor governments and are actually involved in the implementation of these programs and projects. So this gives them a channel to influence, to some extent, the kind of policies that are implemented and to demonstrate, for example, that these are or are not working on the ground. 
Um, and I think one of the differences with uh, Chinese aid is that, first of all, Chinese aid, although it's always very difficult to disentangle the aid from trade and the investment, but let's stick to the word trade for the, uh, aid for the moment. Um, Chinese aid is, is governmental aid. Uh, Chinese government does not channel money through NGOs. There are no significant developmental NGOs in China. There are also <coughs> no watchdog um, civil society organizations in China that are keeping an eye on and demanding accountability for Chinese aid um, in Africa or other countries. So um, there's there's a gap there. And um, I think it's it's important that civil societies organizations in Africa um, push for greater transparency around Chinese aid, trade and investment, because because they're not um, involved in the implementation of projects and policies, they don't have that same body of knowledge about what is actually going on with Chinese aid that they might have in relation to much of Western governmental or multilateral aid. And um, a lot of the negotiations around aid take place between government leaders, Chinese government representatives and African government leaders. So civil society organisations are excluded from that. So I think there's a big role that um, they can play in pushing for greater transparency of how these deals are negotiated. So, um, and and I think the other aspect in which... um, and they're already playing a role, is looking at some of the effects of aid projects. Um, they already do that in relation to Western governments, and they need also to do that in relation to Chinese government, and um, to be a critical, friendly voice in that process. But I think one of the difficulties in that as well is that uh, whilst, um, as I mentioned already, some of those civil society organisations in the West and in Africa can, uh, in, in so far as they are part of the implementation process or are invited in by uh, development, governmental development agencies to comment on um, the design of projects or the, uh, um, the, the implementation of projects, um, they can have some influence. And actually, the local civil society organisations can in turn form alliances with, say, for example, they had some um, some objections to or comments on the nature of British aid, say, to Nigeria or Kenya, they could actually link up with developmental NGOs in the UK and jointly lobby or get additional information from those organisations. And that's missing in the case of China because there are, there are not any developmental or very, 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 very few um, in fact, really none, <laughs> NGOs um, in China. Uh, there are one or two that have a few operations now in Africa, but very insignificant. So there isn't a corresponding community of development or civil society organisations with which local um, civil society organisations in the aid-recipient countries could form alliances to press for um, aid practices and policies uh, that were were more beneficial parts to local communities. Do you think this um, sort of this exclusion poses some kind of security threat? So thinking of you know um, 
Chinese migrants in Africa and things like that, and the publicized death of Fang Jingui um, by the Islamic State. Do you think that this has some kind of strain on the Chinese government? And does that pose any kind of security threat for, I guess, people, African um, civilians as well as Chinese governments that are in these countries? Well, I think the threat applies as much to Chinese as yes. to Africans as well. I mean, just look at the Kenyan, the bombings in Kenya, mm. um, it, both in 1998 and the recent bombing of the um, Mao, shopping Mao. Um, so this is not isolated uh, to China or to foreigners mm. in any way at all. Um, but this instance of Fang Jinghui, I mean, this is, again, this is one of many incidents where Chinese workers have been engineers or whatever, have been caught up in um, kidnappings uh, for money or for attacks by um, extreme Islamist forces. Um, and I think this does put pressure on the Chinese government. It is of concern to the Chinese government. And I think it does raise issues about how far will this push China to go beyond its um, holy principles of non-interference. And I think it is likely to. But I imagine that uh, the way China would be approached, would approach this would be to operate very much behind the scenes um, and to um, put pressure on the local governments or parties concerned uh, to resolve these, those issues. But I, I think it is going to be an increasing problem for the Chinese government as it extends its economic um, influence across the world. I'm wondering, I'm sort of asking for a hot take here, but do you think do you think we might see or start to see a, a development of Chinese capacity? For example, we saw a massive rescue operation in Libya of Chinese citizens while Western governments were seemingly bogged down in that. Do you think we'll see a lot of um, development of Chinese capacity to do these rescue operations in the future, especially as they do extend um, further into the, the continent? Well, yes, it's not something I've um, looked at closely, but it wouldn't surprise me to see more of that. Right. I mean, it would make sense really for any government to develop some kind of capacity like that. So following from that, so um, for a long time, there's been talk about you know special investment relationship between China and African countries, and we've seen a proliferation of infrastructure projects, development loans, and connections with big, big projects like connecting Mombasa into One Belt Road, One Belt One Road initiative. And it's usually in the context of exporting a new kind of development model to the continent. So what is your perspective on that? And do you think it's possible to balance commercial and state interests with African development? Yes, I mean, we have seen a proliferation of infrastructural projects. I mean, this is a, the type of aid trade investment that China is sort of specialising in and that Western governments have uh, not done on such a scale for a long time because of their focus since the uh, millennium on governance and social development issues. Um, I would not agree with you about it as a sort of strategy of exporting a Chinese model of development because I don't think the Chinese government sets out to export its own model of development as one that can be replicated by the rest of the world. I, I don't think that's um, fair um, fair way of um, conceptualising uh, what is happening. I mean, it can be seen as a different way of doing development, or this is similar to what was done in West, with Western aid in the 50s and 60s. Um, but I, I don't think it's actually 
a deliberate attempt to export a particular model of development. I mean, there are interests also in China in the kind of work that go the investment and the employment aspects of infrastructural development, um, which have have nothing to do with promoting model of development. Um, On whether you can balance commercial and state interests um, with African development, well, that, that depends on who is doing the balancing and in whose interests. And I think um, we're back here to these issues of transparency and accountability and government and uh, civil society uh, um, leaders because um, I think it's very important. I mean, for, for many African governments, Chinese uh, trade and investment can seem very attractive because... Um, it appears to lack any conditionality. Mm-hmm. And so this makes it seem much easier. The Chinese um, c- contractors and investors are seemed to get on with things, do them quickly, turn things around quickly, and do them cheaply. Um, and particularly, they don't lay down conditions apart, of course, except, of course, the issue around Taiwan, the recognition of Taiwan. But... Um, it's still, but that doesn't make it any less important for any government government leaders to negotiate carefully the kind of deals they are doing. Um, and I think he, here is is part of the problem, because um, what are the interests of, of government leaders in some of these trade investment deals, um, and are they are those interests framed by some developmental vision of how the country uh, should move forward, how it should industrialise, how what kind of development it should be engaging in. Um, so unless you have that as a starting point, um, a an idea about, a plan about how the country is going to develop industrially, agriculturally, um, then it makes it very difficult otherwise for government leaders to negotiate with Chinese government and to situate what they're offering within that broader framework of a developmental plan and a plan for poverty reduction as well. Mm. Um, so I, I think, um, that, again, this highlights the importance of the need for greater transparency around Chinese aid trade and investment. Um, and there, I think civil society organisations, including the media, have a very important role in trying to uh, illuminate what exactly is is taking place in these deals. Great. Well, I yes, I see uh, we're coming fairly close to time here, but I wanted to ask you one more thing, particularly about your work. Um, I'm wondering where you're going now with with your work. Um, if you're thinking perhaps more about building Africa, this Chinese-Africa dynamic into your work in future, or if you're just focusing uh, particularly on China. And, of course, we'd be very interested to hear about that as well. Yes, okay. Well, my uh, a lot of my work um, has focused on um, China uh, and Chinese politics and governance issues. Um, and as you know, I've, I've looked also a lot at civil society issues in China. So I'm particularly interested at the moment in the governmental approach to an emerging, if we, let's call it civil society in China. So that's where my future research is taking me to me because I think we're a very important juncture at the moment in, mm-hmm. in China. Um, in terms of the China-Africa relationship, I'm very interested in pursuing this 
in uh, with some solid field work. I think this is often lacking, and much of the research on China-Africa relations, which tends to have been left at the level of international relations, which has been very informative and very useful. But I also think it's time now to do for some more um, detailed kind of field work. So I would I'm particularly interested in doing. Um, some work in East Africa on the um, China-East Africa relationship, both economically, militarily and politically. That's actually very interesting considering, well, I mean, we're a bit more on the media side of this, but often we, we talk very much in general terms about the, the, you know, the Chinese government as a whole, when in fact you look at the relationship with the continent, with Africa, and you see that these links are not necessarily government-driven, but often by private investors or migrants that come yes. in. Yeah. Um, and I suppose a you know, main body of scholarship coming out of uh, new, new research and very on-the-ground research by Deborah Brautigam, obviously, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. really questioning that relationship. Do you think that maybe this media narrative has gone way too far and we're into dangerous territory? Well, to me, it seems that a lot of the media coverage um, has has been rather polemicised, and in turn, that has prompted a polemical response yes. from Chinese government. So, uh, in recent years, I've seen you know quite adept um, interviews with Chinese ambassadorial staff or representatives in Africa. Um, rebutting all of the claims that tend to be made in the media and by Western governments about China being a new colonial or imperialist power, mm-hmm. rampaging through Africa, scrambling for resources, um, or um, challenging the idea that actually Chinese companies only employ Chinese and don't pr- employ local workers, um, and rebutting at all the points that are often made in Western media about uh, the China-Africa relationship. So I, I think it, it, it has... Um, we see the similar arguments and criticisms be made time and time again, and uh, yet sometimes without any solid mm. evidence to support this. I'm not suggesting that these criticisms are not um, valid, uh, but I think it's time now to to really get some more uh, substantive evidence. That is absolutely brilliant. As always, fantastic to speak with you. Um, very, very interesting stuff. Is there anything from you, Yossi? No, no? Thank you so much for your insight. Yeah, well, thank you much, very much for inviting me, and I wish the summit a great deal of success. I'm sure it will be a wonderful experience. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. We would like to thank everybody listening to this podcast and remind you to go visit the LSA Africa Summit website at lsafricasummit.com for any questions or to register for the event and to stay tuned for more interviews we'll run in the future. Thanks again and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.